All right, we are ready to go ahead and get started here. Okay, so where we left off last week, um, the seven had been chosen. It had been decided that there was just a lot going on, a lot of responsibility for the 12 apostles. They needed to branch out, so they chose seven people who were full of the Spirit and could go out and help with other responsibilities. The responsibility was to um, the ministry of, they were going to stay to the ministry of the Word of God and not to wait on tables to, ha- to help feed the poor. So they chose seven men from among them full of the Spirit and, and wisdom. And I'm not going to go through the names again like I did last week. I butchered them. But uh, one in particular was Stephen. And when we pick up in verse 8, that's who we're going to be talking about because he was seized. So, beginning in verse 8, Now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, did great wonders and miraculous signs among the people. Opposition arose, however, from members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Cilicia and Asia. These men began to argue with Stephen, but they could not stand up against his wisdom or the spirit by whom he spoke. Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, We have heard Stephen speak words of blasphemy against Moses and against God. So they stirred up the people and elders and the teachers of the law. They seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. They produced false witnesses who testified. This fellow never stopped speaking against this holy place and against the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen, and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. So these people known as the synagogue of the freedmen, as they call themselves, they didn't like what Stephen was preaching. And how ironic is it that they were of the synagogue of the freedmen when it was the apostles and Stephen and the others who were really the ones who were free? For we find freedom in Christ and in acknowledging that he is our savior rather than by following some ritual or law. So these men, though they called themselves the freedmen, were truly not free. But they couldn't stand up against his wisdom or the spirit by whom he spoke. So God had given him the gift of wisdom, among other gifts. A gift that in situations he knew what to say or how to do something. I often heard, I heard one time that knowledge is like water. It's plentiful. We know where to find it. A lot of people have water or know where they can get water. Okay, and then understanding is a bucket in which to hold that water. Okay, so understanding, it takes the knowledge and then you understand the knowledge. So it's like a bucket holding that water. But wisdom is knowing what to do with that bucket of water. Like if there's a fire, throw it on the fire. So wisdom, though it's like knowledge and understanding, it's something even greater. And it's a it's a gift from God. And many people have great wisdom, and we often say, oh, that person's full of wisdom. But do we acknowledge that it comes from God? 
It comes from the Holy Spirit. And in the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 12, Paul speaks of the word of wisdom or a, an acknowledgement of wisdom. A wisdom just sometimes just comes out of people and it comes by the Holy Spirit. So Stephen was full of great wisdom and they could not stand against what he was saying. You know, if they tried to tell him that the sky was purple, he would explain why it was blue. You know, that's, that's a little bit of a stretch, but it's that kind of thing. They, nothing they could say could come against what he had an answer for because his knowledge and wisdom wasn't coming from himself or his experience, it was coming from the Holy Spirit. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. They seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. You know, I don't know how many times we've mentioned the Sanhedrin in this study, and we never really told you what the Sanhedrin is. San means son, and hedra means, I can't remember now. <laughs> I think it was like um, ruler or something like that. But anyway, it was... Um, they were almost, they were, they were 71 people, 71 men who came together in the tradition of Moses calling 70 elders to help him. Similar to what we just talked about. The 12 call seven more to help them. Moses got so overwhelmed in all of his duties that his father-in-law told him to find help. And he did. He found 70 elders of the people of Israel who helped him in various matters. So in that tradition, they had 71. Now, I don't know why they had 71, but I think it's very ironic, in air quotes, ironic, that they had 71 when in the tradition of Moses they had 70, but they added to it. In a way, that's very symbolic of what they were doing with the law given by Moses, they were adding to it. So they added to the number of elders by having 71, and they added to the laws that were given by Moses, and here we are. So anyway, they're before the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin, they were prosecutor, judge, and executioner. They were above everybody else. They studied the law. They knew the law. They were probably made up of, mostly made up of Pharisees, but they could have been made up of some Sadducees as well, a different sect of the Jews. But anyway, they were the chiefs of the law. If there was a matter of dispute, you went before the Sanhedrin, kind of like we'd go to small claims court. If uh, we said our neighbor tried to chop down my tree, you'd go before the Sanhedrin. And the Sanhedrin would decide according to the law. Now, what they would say was according to the law of Moses, but it was really according to their law. They would decide what would happen to the person who tried to chop down the tree. So it wasn't like our system in America where the person could kind of give it a defense. Well, they could try, but if the Sanhedrin found them guilty, they were guilty. And then the Sanhedrin could say, you know, you must uh, plant a tree or plant two trees for your neighbor, or in worst cases, they could have said, you'll be stoned to death. So this, they, brought, they brought Stephen before the Sanhedrin, 
and they produced false witnesses who testified. This fellow never stopped speaking against this holy place and against the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs of Moses handed down to us. Did Jesus say that? And did Stephen say that? Well, Jesus did say to his disciples, tear this tear this building apart or I will tear this building apart and rebuild it within three days. And the Pharisees like, oh, you can't do that. It took, took Solomon 40 years to build this temple. You're not going to rebuild it in three days. So in a way, he did say that. Jesus did say that he would destroy that temple and rebuild it. But he wasn't talking physically. He was talking about the temple of his body. That he would be laid in a grave for three days and three nights. And after three days, that temple no longer matters. His body, the temple of the Lord, which then the Holy Spirit comes into our bodies and we become a temple of the Lord because of his sacrifice. So in a sense, that wasn't really a lie. Now, changing the customs, how does it say it again? Uh, And to change the customs Moses handed down to us. Well, the customs that Moses handed down to Israel was not at all what they were practicing at this time. You've heard Pastor Ian and I both talk about, let's say this microphone right here is the law, and they would, you build a fence around it, and that way if I build this fence, if I don't cross that fence, I'm never going to break the law. You know what? I'm going to build another fence around that. If I don't cross this outer fence, I'm certainly not going to cross the inner fence. I'm certainly never going to break the law. So that's what they did. They built these laws around the law. One of them that we learn about in the Bible was there was a, a man walking with a broken sandal. And they said to him, you can't walk with that broken sandal because it's work. You're making yourself work by lifting that sandal up off the ground on a Sabbath. I'm sorry, but that's not in here. It doesn't say thou shalt not walk with a broken sandal on the Sabbath, okay? It doesn't say that. That was added. That was one of those outer fences added. It wasn't specifically about a Sabbath. It was just you can't walk with anything that causes you to do work on the Sabbath. So that was not a custom of Moses. And yes, Jesus tried to destroy that. Once his disciples walked in, to the temple, and they ate some of the showbread. And the Pharisees went nuts. You can't eat that. But Jesus asked them, what's more important, to feed the body when you're hungry or to have this symbolic presence of bread when, in fact, I'm the bread standing before you that this is symbolizing. That bread that they put in the temple, the 12 loaves of bread to represent the 12 tribes of Israel, those were loaves that were put there to represent Jesus, a culmination of all 12 tribes with the 12 loaves. But they didn't understand that because they had built so many laws around the law that they couldn't see any longer. They blinded themselves with their own law. There are people in this world that do the same thing. They get a taste of power. They get a taste of money or Uh, all sorts of different vices, and they will make up lies, they will make up lifestyles, they will change things, and they will convince themselves that they are doing the right thing when in fact they are sinning all over the place. And 
they just don't see it because they have become blinded to what they're doing. In the book of Zechariah, it says that they will sear their conscience with their sins. And that's exactly what happened here to the Pharisees. So all who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen, and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Have you ever looked at somebody and said their face looks like the face of an angel? Only babies. Only babies, okay. Yeah. Babies, we sometimes do that, right? But I imagine it was probably shining brightly from the Holy Spirit welling up inside of him. It's hard to know for sure what it was, and someday we'll get to heaven, we'll be able to ask him. But they were staring intently because they weren't sure what they were seeing, and yet they still wouldn't believe. They still would not believe that this man was a man of God. So he did not speak blasphemy against Moses and against God. He, in fact, said exactly what Jesus had said and what Moses had said. But again, they didn't see it because they had their own, if you will, reality as to what was going on. So any questions about that? Nothing on Facebook? Okay. We're going to move into chapter 7 then. And this chapter, and I'm not sure if we'll get through all of it tonight. We can try. It, it's, um, it's basically one very long speech. In fact, it is the longest speech in the book of Acts. Um, might even be the longest one in the Bible. I don't know about that. But I know it is the longest speech in the book of Acts. And it's Stephen's speech to the Sanhedrin. So let's read it. Let's start out with the first few verses here. Then the high priest asked him, Are these charges true? To this he replied, Brothers and fathers, listen to me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham while he was still in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran. Leave your country and your people, God said, and go to the land I will show you. What he starts out with is he's going back to the book of Genesis. He's about to prepare a speech and deliver a speech that he's obviously prepared, or maybe he's just coming off the cuff by the leading of the Holy Spirit. But he's going to go through and show them that Jesus is who he says he was and that the Bible teaches us that Jesus is who he says he is. So he starts out with Abraham, a very important person to all the people sitting before him, all 71 of them, and the people who were listening, because Abraham, as we know, was told by God in Genesis chapter 12, verse 1, go to a land that you do not know. And then when he gets there, he says to him, I will make you a great nation. And that nation became Israel through Isaac and Jacob. So he starts out by talking about Abraham. So it's, he's setting the stage. They know who he is, and he's just going to let it go. So verse 4, So he left the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. After the death of his father, God sent him to this land where you are now living. He gave him no inheritance here, not even a good foot of ground. But God promised him that he and his descendants after him would possess the land, even though at that time Abraham had no child. So 
he comes to the land of Israel. And if you know the story of Abraham, he then goes down to Egypt. So he didn't even really stay there, okay? He eventually comes back out of Egypt, but he never gets back to Jerusalem, where they are right now, okay? And God promised it him and promised him that he and his descendants after him would possess the land, even though at that time Abraham had no child. God spoke to him in this way, your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated 400 years. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves. God said, and afterward they will come out of that country and worship me in this place. So that is Genesis chapter 15, where God is speaking to Abraham, telling him that they will be more numerous than the sand on the sea, and that they will be enslaved and mistreated for 400 years. And you can look in the book of Genesis and see this person was this age when he became the father of this person, and then that person was this age when he became the father of that person. If you add it all up, you'll see that it was indeed 400 years that they were in the land of Egypt. But he doesn't stop there. He goes on to tell them how they got to Egypt. Now, keep in mind, he's telling this to people who have studied the law their whole life. You know, there were none of these things back then. You couldn't just go to a bookstore and buy a Bible. You couldn't go to Walmart and buy a Bible. Or you couldn't get one off the guy selling apples and oranges. Hey, are you interested in a Bible too? You know, give me a sheep, I'll give you a Bible. It didn't work that way. To know the law, you had to be in this inner circle where you read the scrolls that the, that the scribes had written down and transferred from scroll to scroll. As the scroll got old, they would, they would do away with it, and they'd write out another one, and they read those. So very few people knew the real story here. Stephen knew, and he was telling the people who supposedly already knew this. So let's continue on. Beginning with verse 8. Then he gave Abraham the covenant of circumcision, and Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him eight days after his birth. Later, Isaac became the father of Jacob, and Jacob became the father of the twelve patriarchs. In the book of Genesis, we learn that, J that Jacob, the grandson of Abraham, became known as Israel. One night, Jacob is wrestling with God, and he changed his name to Israel, which means wrestles with God. And that's what Israel did from that point on. They wrestled with God for their entire existence. They still wrestle with God. So the 12 patriarchs became, or the 12 children, the 12 sons of Jacob, became known as the 12 tribes of Israel, of which these men here were most likely from two one of the two of one of two of those tribes either judah or benjamin and if we have time later i'll get into why i say that but let's continue on for right now because the patriarchs were jealous of i'm sorry i, I skipped something here no, that's okay right. that's right verse nine because the patriarchs were jealous of joseph they sold him as a slave into egypt but god was with him joseph was one of the 12 and his brothers were jealous of him and rescued him from all his troubles. He gave Joseph wisdom and enabled him to gain the goodwill of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So he made him ruler over Egypt and all his palace. So again, the story of Joseph, 
his brothers sell him as a slave to um, gypsies that are going by. He ends up in Egypt. He gets thrown in prison. He interprets a dream for Pharaoh. He becomes very popular Pharaoh. Next thing you know, he's second in command in all of Egypt, a very powerful nation in the world at that time, probably one of the most powerful nations in the world at that time. And as the second in command, he interpreted a dream for the Pharaoh that said there would be a famine and that there would be a time of good. So during that time of good, they collected a lot of food. And then when the time of famine came, they had food. So then a famine struck all of Egypt and Canaan, bringing great suffering, and our fathers could not find food, talking about Jacob and the, the other 11. When Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent our fathers on their first visit, 10 of the 12 sons. On their second visit, Joseph told his brothers who he was, and Pharaoh learned about Joseph's family. After this, Joseph sent for his father Jacob and his whole family, 75 in all. 75 people go into Egypt. That's important. Then Jacob went down to Egypt where he and our fathers died. Their bodies were brought back to Shechem and placed in the tomb that Abraham had brought had bought from the sons of Hamor at Shechem for a certain sum of money. Okay, so that covers the rest of the book of Genesis right there. Um, so again, he's telling this to people who already know, but he's setting the stage for something very important here. Okay. He's building a case for himself. As the time drew near for God to fulfill his promise to Abraham, the number of our people in Egypt greatly increased. Then another king who knew nothing about Joseph, that's from Exodus chapter one, became ruler of Egypt. He dealt treacherously treacherously with our people and oppressed our forefathers by forcing them to throw out their newborn babies so that they would die. At the time Moses was born, he was no ordinary child. For three months, he was cared for in his father's house. When he was placed outside, Pharaoh's daughter took him and brought him up as her own son. Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was powerful in speech and action. So again, he's, he's teaching this to people that already know, but in case anybody watching on Facebook doesn't know, Moses was an Israelite. He was born of the tribe of Levi, the third son of Jacob. And he was put into the water, into the Nile, where Pharaoh's daughter saw him, brought him up, and raised him as her own. But because he needed to be fed, he found Moses' mother. And so Moses could feed her own son. So she got to care for him. But he was raised as Pharaoh's grandson or Pharaoh's daughter's son. So he became very popular in Egypt, just like Joseph had. All right, where did I leave off? <laughs> okay, verse 23. When Moses was 40 years old, he decided to visit his fellow Israelites. Can you imagine 40 years living in the castle and not going out and talking to the people that you're part of? That, that just blows my mind. He saw one of them being mistreated by an Egyptian, so he went to his defense and avenged him by killing the Egyptian. Moses thought that his own people would realize that God was using him to rescue them, but they did not. 
the next day Moses came upon two Israelites who were fighting. He tried to reconcile them by saying, Man, you are both brothers. Why do you want to hurt each other? But the man who was mistreating the other pushed Moses aside and said, Who made you ruler and judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? When Moses heard this, he fled to Midian, where he settled as a foreigner and had two sons. So in this, Moses realizes that God's going to use him in a way. He realizes God's going to use him to deliver these people. He didn't want any part of that. He said, I just killed this Egyptian. Now they're going to think that I'm going to lead them out of here. I don't want that. So he kind of ran away. Next day, he didn't think anybody saw it. And here they say, what are you going to do? Kill me like you killed that Egyptian? So now he knew that they knew, the Israelites knew, that he had killed someone. So he fled. But if, you were, if we were to be able to talk to Moses right now, I'm sure the bigger reason he fled is because he kind of knew, I think God was preparing him ahead of time, that he was going to lead these people out, and he didn't want any part of that. But we don't know that for sure, but... I bet that's what Moses was thinking when he stayed away for 40 years. So 40 years in the castle, in the Pharaoh's um, castle, 40 years in Midian. And then one day he goes up on this mountain and we're going to read verse 30. After 30 years he had passed, an angel appeared to Moses in the flames of a burning bush in the desert near Mount Sinai. When he saw this, he was amazed at the sight. As he went over to look more closely, he heard the Lord's voice. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Moses trembled with fear and did not dare to look. Now, how many of you, if you saw a bush burning but not being consumed, and then you hear someone talking, would you be afraid? (laughs) I can't even imagine. The Lord said to him, take off your sandals. The place where you are standing is holy ground. I have indeed seen the oppression of my people in Egypt. I have heard their groaning and have come down to set them free. Now come, I will send you back to Egypt. Let me ask you a question. Why do you think God said remove your sandals for the place you're standing is holy ground? Anybody want to tackle that one? Anybody on Facebook want to tackle that one? No? The answer is really pretty easy. Let's see if anybody on Facebook answers. It's man-made. Sandals were man-made. This was a holy place. Nothing where he was standing was man-made. It was all God's creation. Out in the wild, out in the wilderness. And he's walking with something that is separating him, Moses, his body separating him from the ground he's walking on that was holy ground. God wants to remove everything that separates us from him. In this case, it was sandals. Was there anything sinful about wearing sandals? Well, if you ask the Pharisees, walking with a broken one on the Sabbath was sinful. And part of the reason they got that was from this passage that Stephen's talking about here. Not the passage in the book of Acts, but the passage in Exodus chapter 3. But anyway, he takes the sandals off and he stands before the Lord. He says, now come, I will send you back to Egypt. Moses is probably thinking, oh great, I just got out of there. I'm 80 years old now, and you're sending me back. This is the same Moses whom they had rejected with the words, 
Who made you ruler and judge? Well, it appears now that God did. He has sent, he was sent to be their ruler and deliverer by God himself through an angel who appeared to him in the bush. He led them out of Egypt and did wonders and miraculous signs in Egypt at the Red Sea and for 40 years in the desert. Do you see the pattern developing there? 40 years in the palace, 40 years in Midian, and now 40 years in the desert. 40 is a very significant number. So this is that Moses that, who told the Israelites, God will send you a prophet like me from your own people. That's Deuteronomy chapter 18. The people were amazed when they said, he said this too. You're gonna, God's going to send us a prophet from among us. Now they didn't know who it was. And from that point on, they kept looking for this prophet. Now we later came to know who it was. It was Jesus. So he says, he will send you a prophet from your own people. He was in the assembly in the desert with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai and with our fathers, and he received living words to pass on to us. But our fathers refused to obey him. Instead, they rejected him and in their hearts turned back to, Jesus, to Egypt. They told Aaron, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who had led us out of Egypt, we don't know what happened to him. So I'm going to stop there for a second. So they come out of Egypt. They come up against the Red Sea. And they think it's over. I mean, that's impossible, right? Who can cross the Red Sea? It's impossible. But with God, all things are possible. And so they start grumbling. First of all, we're hungry. Second of all, we had a place to sleep. We had food. Yeah, we worked all hours of the day and night, but at least we had a place to sleep and we had food. Now you bring us up against the water where we're probably going to drown. Thanks, Moses. Let us go back. But Moses led them through the Red Sea, as we know. And then later, Moses goes up on the mountain where he saw the burning bush, and he's going to make, he's going not to make, but to get. I apologize for that. He didn't make the Ten Commandments. He brought down the Ten Commandments from God. But he was gone for 40 days. Not 40 years this time, thank goodness. 40 days up on the mountain to get the Ten Commandments. And these people are saying, we don't know where he went. Let's just, you know, here, take some gold, make a calf for us, Aaron. That was the time they made an idol in the form of a calf. They brought sacrifices to it and held a celebration in honor of what their hands had made. But God turned away and gave them over to the worship of the heavenly bodies. This agrees with what is written in the book of prophets. Did you bring me sacrifices and offerings 40 years in the desert, O house of Israel? You have lifted up the shrine of Moloch and the star of your god, Rephon, the idols you made to worship. Therefore, I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. That comes from the book of Amos, okay? Something about the Bible that we need to understand is a lot of things that happened on a small scale would happen again on a much larger scale and sometimes even in a grander scale. But typically that third time, it's something spiritual. So what happened was they made an, an idol of a calf 
because they were kind of afraid, you know, and they said, well, that's what they did in Egypt. They had all kinds of idols made out of gold. So let's make one. You know, we don't know where our leader went. Sure, he got us through the Red Sea. Remember, they couldn't read the Bible. They didn't know who God was for, for sure, even though Moses had been telling them. So they made this idol, and then that became a fulfillment of a greater sin when Israel, prior to what we're reading here, made idols and worshipped Moloch and had their children pass through fire, and then God sent them into exile into Babylon. But when he's talking there, he's talking specifically to the tribes of Judah and Benjamin. And again, I think we will have time. Hopefully we will, but we'll, we'll try to get to that. But if not, we'll bring it up next week. Okay. So our forefathers had the tabernacle of testimony with them in the desert when they wandered for 40 years. It had been made as God directed Moses, according to the pattern he had seen. Having received the tabernacle, our fathers under Joshua brought it with them when they took the land from the nations God drove out before them. It remained in the land until the time of David. Hold on to that point. It's very important. Who enjoyed God's favor and asked that he might provide a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built the house for him. However, the Most High does not live in houses made by men. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things? That's from the book of Isaiah. So I'm going to stop there for a moment. So he gets through how they get there, you know, through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses. Moses builds this tabernacle. Joshua brings that tabernacle into the land where they are now living, okay, because they had to drive out the people before them. And the, it stayed in the land until the time of David, which is about 2,000 years, roughly, I'm thinking, um, something give or take, in that time frame from when they built the tabernacle until the time of David. That may not be, no, that's not accurate. More like 1,000 years. I don't know how long it is, but it's, it's a long time. So the tab tabernacle stayed in the, in the land of Israel until they built the temple, okay? And now they're building this temple, but God is saying through the prophet Isaiah, what kind of house can you build for me? I made everything. goes back to that, take those sandals off because that's man-made. And God doesn't want anything coming between us. All right, let's wrap this up. When they heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this, they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep. 
I skipped a part. I skipped a couple verses, very important verses too. So I'm going to go back to it. Beginning with verse 51. You stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears. You were just like your fathers. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your fathers did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. You have received the law. You who have received the law that was put into effect through the angels, but have not obeyed it. Those were fighting words. And that's when they rush at him furious and stone him to death. So what he's saying is that the prophet that Moses talked about was the one who would come and save the people. The seed of Abraham that, was, that God told Abraham about was not all of them, but Jesus that he was talking about. For when Jesus saves you, you come into his family and you are more numerous than the sands on the sea and the stars in the sky. It's very interesting, and i got a, a minute here. I want to say, if we read the book of Numbers, which is about taking account, that's where the word Numbers comes from, taking the census, the people that came out of Egypt, a certain number, were more numerous than if we could, and people have extrapolated this, they don't, we don't know for sure, but they've extrapolated about how much sand is on a particular beach, a common beach. The people that came out were more numerous than the people that were, than the number of grains of sand on a beach. The people who then came out of the wilderness were more numerous than the stars in the sky, at least as far as we know. We haven't seen clear to the ends of the universe. And that's what God had told Abraham that they'd be more numerous than the sands of the sea, then later on he told them they'd be no, more numerous than the stars in the sky. So God fulfilled his promise. They multiplied. When they came into Egypt, they were 75. When they came out, they were a few hundred thousand. When they came out of the wilderness, they were even more. He kept multiplying them. Because, as we've been reading in the book of Acts, when the Holy Spirit comes upon a person, they become part of the family of God. And they become more and more and more numerous. And even though it seem, may seem like our numbers are declining these days, people are still turning to God, still turning to Jesus as their Savior. In fact, Pastor Ian and I got to witness it Monday night with a young man that was here for Monday meals, and it was fabulous. So it's happening. Okay, we're coming up on the end here. I'm going to see what we got on Facebook. Like Moses, we tend to flee from God's true calling on our lives. God is so patient with us to wait until he had completely prepared us to show us the burning bush and lead us into his true calling by his Holy Spirit. Amen. In one of our Bible studies, we talked about the number 40 represents a time of testing and preparation. Exactly, Kathy. That's one of the things. It's also in that time period was about the length of a generation. People didn't, you know... The, the generation was about 40 years, although people were living longer than that. Moses was 120. Um, not everybody lived that long, but a typical generation was at that time considered to be 40 years. And then later on, it became 70 years, which is another significant number. But um, I'm going to try to get a couple points in that I said I would come back to. And 
I know I'm not going to be able to do it justice with the time we have left, but perhaps we can bring it up a little bit um, tomorrow or next week. The number 10 is very significant, and the number 2, because together they add up to 12, and there were 12 tribes of Israel. But I kept saying Judah and Benjamin, and then I would say the 10 brothers came forward first. That's because that's how they were separated in the book of 1 Kings. There was a civil war in Israel. Ten tribes went to the north, and the two tribes of Judah and Benjamin stayed to the south. They became known as the tribe or the house of Israel and the house of Judah. And when you're reading in the books of First Kings, Second Kings, First Chronicles, Second Chronicles, you'll hear so and so became king of Judah, so and so became king of Israel, or in Ezekiel a lot he says, "Speak to the house of Israel, speak to the house of Judah." They were separated. Okay, and that's very important because the two, Benjamin and Judah, they never really lost their identity. Jews that we know today are from Judah, from the tribe of Judah or Benjamin. Benjamin kind of became a part of Judah. The other 10 were scattered among the world. And then Jesus comes on the scene and he says, I have come for the sheep of the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So does that mean he didn't come for the Jews? No, he came for them as well, but he wanted to now bring back all those people. And he tells us a parable of the kingdom of God is like a fisherman who threw a dragnet over and pulled in so many fish he couldn't hold it. And that even happened to Peter and John. But that dragnet that he throws out is his life, his the gospel. You throw it out and it brings in all of us. So we are, in a sense, representative of the ten, whereas the Jews are representative of the two, and it was the ten who went first to Egypt, the ten brothers, because they went first and then came back and brought the rest. As of today, by and large, the Jews don't believe in Jesus as their Savior. They don't believe he's the Messiah. But the day will come, the Bible tells us, when they will on a large scale, believe because the ten had went before them, and now we're going to come back and bring the two, and form the house of Israel again, in the kingdom of heaven. So, I hope that made sense. I know I, I could probably talk for hours and hours about that particular subject, but um, let's see if there's any questions. Oh. Pat has a very good point here. I assume the Sanhedrin was 71 because Moses called 70, and then they counted Moses too. That very well could be the answer. Thank you, Pat. I didn't think of that. Um, most likely that is the reason. Okay. Any other questions, comments, prayer requests? I didn't see any prayer requests on Facebook. Okay. In that case, we will end right there. Um, We'll probably talk a little bit about this because we covered a lot, you know, the rest of chapter six and all of chapter seven. But the way chapter seven is written with it being a speech like that, and a lot of it just a historical look at at the nation of Israel, um, I thought it was best to go through it like that. But we'll maybe bring it up a little bit next week and catch Pastor Ian up. Um, But then we'll get into chapter 8 and talk about Philip and Simon the Sorcerer and 
And then chapter 9, we'll get into the Apostle Paul. Um, so we will be here next week. And the week after, I believe, is April 7th. Mm-hmm. Okay. The week after that, April 14th, we will not be here. We're, we're, we're taking that day off. Uh, both Ian and I are going to be out of town that day. So we'll be back for two weeks. Then we'll be off for the 14th and 21st until who knows when. We will continue on again until we both decide to take a day off at the same time. But uh, we've decided that if I take a day off, then he'll fill in. Or if he takes a day off, I'll fill in. Or if I take a day off, he'll fill in. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Um, So that we try to keep this going every week. But when we're both off, and with it being after Easter, he needs a break anyway. So let's close in prayer. I don't see any... Oh, continued prayer for Don Ritchie. Don Ritchie. Yes. Okay. All right. Um, I have a, an unspoken request. I, have, I don't really have the permission of this person to speak across the airwaves. I think he wouldn't care, but um, I, I just want to say it as an unspoken request. He's been on my mind a lot today. So uh, we'll do that. And what was Don Ritchie, did you say? Don Ritchie. Okay, let's go to prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this evening. We thank you for guiding us, for reaching us with the story of Stephen. Lord, let it permeate our hearts and and change us and alter our thoughts that we not only, Lord, can look at this man's sacrifice who stood up for you, knowing the truth, knowing the blindness of the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin, and still stood up in the face of of persecution. May we learn from this, Lord, and may we apply it to our lives. Father, as we get ready to depart from this place tonight, we ask you to be with us and guide us and protect us wherever we go. Help us to find our way home. Keep us safe. Keep us healthy. Keep us with the ability to come back again next week, whether it be on Facebook or in person. And Father, we just pray that you keep our families safe and keep everyone that we know and love safe as well. Father, we pray for Don Ritchie. Pray that you continue to touch him, continue to bring healing to him. We pray, Father, that, Lord, your hand will just reach down with your Holy Spirit and just bring healing to this man. And, Father, we pray for this unspoken request. Pray that the matters of darkness, spiritual darkness that surrounded this young man will just fade away, that they will not come upon him, that they will not afflict him, and that he can continue on. And Lord, we know who you know who he is, but Father, we just thank you that you will do this for him. And Lord, help us to come back again next week so we can study some more from your holy word so we can continue to grow in relationship with you and to know you better. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. Well, thank you, everyone. And we will see you again next week. March 31st, I think, is next week. Yep. All right.